Good morning and welcome to another, most times I say afternoon because we're actually taping this in the morning bright and early uh, with Dr. Carmen Green. How are you feeling today? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm more blessed than I deserve. I heard you talking about allergies. My allergies are going crazy too. I got to take my Zyrtec every morning when I wake up. Well, that's why I had a challenge. I went a couple of days without it. So I'll, I'll feel better this afternoon. <laughs> So look, as we start each um, one of our uh, episodes, we always ask this question and we want our guests to walk us through the arc of their career. And you've had a storied career uh, in medicine where you're currently Dean. Um, and I, I wanna know about your career and your various career stops from Michigan State to where you work now. Well, thanks for the question. Um, I, I actually need to go back a little bit uh, further than that, I'm an Air Force kid. Oh, okay. So 20 years in the, in the United States Air Force. And I uh, went to med med uh, undergrad at University of Michigan, Flint. Um, we were stationed in Flint. And when Flint was a boom town, mm. uh, as you know, it certainly had its troubled history now with, um, you know, the disparities as it relates to lead in the water. I would go to Michigan State uh, College of Human Medicine um, where... I would learn how to be a doctor. Um, I'd go into anesthesiology as a um, as my residency at the University of Michigan. Made it up to the academic ranks um, to a full professor with tenure and you know one of the first um, African American women to do that to be tenured at the University of Michigan in the medical school. Um, my research really focused on hearing patients' voices. I had this wonderful, um, wonderful mentor who, who died recently, um, James Jackson, who was really fundamentally looking at black and brown people, their stories and comparing black and brown people to black and brown people, as opposed to um, looking at the comparisons to Caucasians, um, because it, intrinsically it was a deficit model instead of a model of, of resilience. So um, my focus has always been about um, healthcare disparities as it relates to pain, looking at the intersection of age, race, gender, and class. And we identified some pretty, this is before anyone was really looking at pain and pain care disparities. We identified some really significant challenges for people of color, mostly black people, such as the failure to have their pain assessed, the failure to have their pain treated, and then having worse outcomes because of it. Um, and then you add in the intersection uh, of gender and the intersection of class. And so, really looking at and trying to understand the unequal burdens of, of pain and to hear the unheard voices of people who live with these conditions. And so um, make it up to the academic ranks. Doing uh, was associate vice president and associate dean at Michigan, which um, I'm not certain that you would know this considering you're at South Carolina as opposed to Michigan. Um, I'm just picking at you a little bit. I, I, I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with that being said, I get a phone call to um, come to a place. I've been focusing on diversity, focusing on people, um, really the patient who's in the bed. 
and the disparities and where do these disparities come from? And so I get a phone call to about the City University of New York School of Medicine. And this medical school is a historic medical school. And so in many ways, I'm the first dean. Um, we are number five in producing African-American physicians um, in the country um, behind the historically black colleges and universities that have medical schools. We take students out of the, as high school students, out of the five boroughs. And 75% of our students come from the five boroughs. The, what's interesting about our students is that we take the best and the brightest and we have actually um, don't use the MCAT. Uh, fundamentally, we believe that the MCAT is a structural institutional barrier that has kept people out. And through a holistic review, um, and over seven years, we guide people through a path to allows them to be uh, physicians. So we refer to ourselves as New York City's medical school because we are the only public medical school in Manhattan. We view ourselves as the home of healers and leaders and creating the doctors that New Yorkers want to see. And what's really neat is that about 50% of our students um, come in with the expected family contribution of zero which means they start off as the lowest income of the lowest income. Um, and then another 30% of our students actually um, are qualified for financial aid. So about 80% of our students would be considered to be disadvantaged and 70% of first-generation immigrants. Um, Can we talk about this one, one thing real quick? I mean, as your, your perch of where you are, this intersection of academia and medicine and, and go back to it. I used to have this theory. I graduated from Orange Road Wilkinson High School, very poor black high school, where there we, we I went to school with some brilliant kids. Um, and, you know, there's a great deal of poverty in our community. And I would tell folk all the time as I got older, you know, these kids are brilliant. But what if they're hungry on the day they take the SAT? Right. And, you know, you do not perform well. Mm -hmm. uh, with hunger is one of the number one causes of, of underperformance of, of impoverished youth. And you utilize that one day, that one standardized test to determine their future outlook. It just drove me crazy. Am I thinking about this the right way as you talk about that intersection of, of academia and medicine? Absolutely. Um, you, you know, you, you can't do well on an exam when your stomach is growling and you're basically starving. And so, you know, that's a challenge that some of our students um, face. Our students, you know, will often take the bus or public transportation two hours to get here. Um, we, you know, that's the reason why we don't use the MCAT and we never have, we never will. And is um, we have shown that we can produce wonderful, talented doctors without that exam. And um, so I often ask, what have we lost and what could we have gained? You know, the people who've taken the tests multiple times and the data is very clear about how racial and ethnic minorities doesn't test what it's supposed to. It's an achievement test on a given day, which does not reflect how well you're, um, you're going to do in a program. I often think about this in the context of, um, what is it, 300 million people in the United States of America? Mm. Yes. All it takes is one person to make a difference. And so, in the lives of, of young people. And so, 
um, we push back on those types of things. Now, you know, there's some exams students have to take in order to make certain that they are good doctors, but the MCAT we've shown is not one of them. And the GRE, there's a reason why people aren't using some of the SAT. It's kept people out. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Before we get to uh, the color of care, um, I want to still delve into your you and your background. Um, you know, one of the unique things about me and my, my experience with our healthcare system, I tell folk it's from three different things. One, when I was in the legislature, we didn't expand Medicaid, so we lost uh, many rural hospitals. It's an epidemic in the South where rural hospitals are shutting down, so you don't have access to care. Number two, my wife nearly died in childbirth, um, so we have that experience with African-American female mortality where she spent the first 36 hours of our kid's life in ICU. And number three, my daughter uh, had a liver transplant when she was 10 months old. And so I saw the, uh, the inner workings of our healthcare delivery system and organ donation um, uh, system in this country, which um, is not equitable by any stretch. Um, but I want you to unpack your expertise at this intersection of pain management and medical discrimination, particularly what you've coined the quote, unequal burden of pain. And as I think back on my healthcare experiences, you know, why did you per se, or what experiences led you to choose pain management as a specialty? Well, great question. Um, first of all, um, I apologize that you and your family had to go through that. Um, I fundamentally believe we're a better country than this. Um, no woman should <laughs> actually have the opportunity, quote unquote, to die because she's giving birth, right? And be separated from her child. So um, I'm sorry that you and your family had to go through that. But unfortunately, um, you know, race is a huge predictor of how um, the quality of care. And for Caucasians, social economic status is, is protective. It's not necessarily protective as it relates to people of color. Um, and that even if you're a high income black person or brown person, um, you may be at risk for um, lesser quality care. So 
how did I get interested in pain management? Um, really, um, I, I was a fellow at the time and I was watching a woman who was really kind of having to justify her pain. And I watched um, white men come in and not have to justify that and that they had pain. And so it started me thinking about who has the right to have pain uh, and then who has the right to care. And so that was how I got started. I was, I'm an anesthesiologist by training. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. My, but my career has really focused on, uh, on pain care and looking at the intersection. So looking at um, maternal ch uh, child um, mortality or morbidity, you know, one of the papers that you might really be interested in is one in which, um, you know, we looked at um, African-Americans um, it was mostly black people coming into a hospital. And we found that African-Americans were 2.5 to three times more likely to have security called on them when compared to white. And this is not even, so, you know, Bakari, as handsome as you are, um, you, you say, well, okay, this is because a bunch of, bunch of people were there, they didn't look like it. This was happening to people who were people of color uh, people who were physicians, people who were professors. So we have some biases in healthcare. I have some biases. We all have biases. The question is whether or not we are willing to look at these things um, to address and to make to address them so that people can get the best quality care and the best possible outcomes. So, and I say to you again that we're a better country than this. So let's let's talk about the color of care. I mean, what is it? And what is it about? And why do you think a film like Color of Care was necessary? Well, The Color of Care um, is, um, is terrific in many ways um, because I'm a scientist. So I can sit here and I can look at my data and present the papers to the community. The Color of Care went to the person who was directly impacted. And it really describes lesser quality care, poor outcomes, problematic communication, things that plague um, healthcare. Um, but it really put it in the lens uh, of COVID. And so people dying before their time, right? People not being able to say goodbye to their loved ones. Um, it speaks to, you know, when you this pandemic started, they said, oh, black people can't get this. And then you found out that black and brown people were dying disproportionately. People had lower income, particularly in places like New York City. So it, the color of care um, really starts to address some of those issues. So how have we used this? Um, I actually says, you know, we have students, we are actually showing this film to every, to our, our I both medical students and PA students, and we are showing this to them. We're asking them to um, address in eight words or less, what does healthcare inequity mean to you? And then we show them the film. And then they go and, you know, they write about what they saw. 
And what they've written is particularly poignant. Um, they talk about how this impacted themselves, right? So this story of other people's stories opens up their stories. So our students were disproportionately impacted because they're New Yorkers um, from their family perspective. And then when they were medical students, seeing people disproportionately die because our students reflect people like you and me. And so um, it's been particularly rich in starting the conversation and helping people to recognize that we can do better. And so we've actually used that in a photo voice technique to use it allow students to explore some of their feelings and to actually think about, again, the person that's in the bed. Let me, let me, let me, let me push back and frame this. For people, some people out there are gonna say, we know there's a problem. We've talked about it a lot and we don't need another documentary. What new ground does Color of Care cover? Well, um, we'd actually, I would say we don't have enough stories about this. I would agree with you. <laughs> I would say um, that we have disinfected some of the stories. We put it over here, you write a paper, you talk about it amongst your, the scientific community. The Color of Care, and what um, Ms. Winfrey and the uh, production team have done is actually open up real people um, and their stories. So I actually um, take the bus while I'm in New York City. Um, and yeah, and where else can you really determine the social determinants of health, right? Looking at people's humanity, looking at what people do to get their kids a good education, right? It's not suburbia where, you know, you pull up in your car and you drop the kid off and, and you wait for the bus to come. This is getting on the MTA bus. And in actuality, from the place that I live and my school, you know, the life expectancy drops 10 years. That's a number. It's, it's a number until you actually see the person, you know, behind these statistics are people. And I think that's what Color of Care does. It shows us the people. It shows us the bus driver, right, um, who, who dies. And, okay, he dies. It shows the family who's connected to that person, that we're all community. And so I take the bus. That bus driver gets sick. Um, he has somebody at home who loves him. And... Could we have done better as healthcare professionals? And you know, the only the challenge I would say is that um, in the color of care, they talk um, about certain hospitals, but the story that they're telling happened in hospitals all over the country. And so this documentary focuses on COVID, which we which is in a space in which we're living now. And I think that's why we need the story. And we have Ms. Winfrey putting her um, the power of her ability to communicate and talk to audiences behind that. So I think that's why we need, and actually we need more stories because the stories allow us to do the science. To, and the challenge is we've sort of, you know, um, put the person over here and focus on the data, but behind those data are real people.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. So to take it one step further, to extrapolate this out, if Joe, if you had 60 votes in the Senate and Joe Biden called you and said, Dr. Green, based upon this movie, based upon this documentary and everything that you've seen, um, how does the federal government help solve the issues raised in this film? What would you tell them based on your experience and from what we see in this documentary? Right. Well, I think, first of all, we got to listen to the people. We have to hear their stories. And then two, we have to actually believe them when they tell their stories, um, particularly if they've carried an unequal burden and their stories haven't been heard before. I would say that we need to have policies in place that allow doctors, allow students who wanna be doctors to walk out of this place, out of spaces like mine, without educational debt so they can continue to go serve in the community that truly needs them. So um, our students, so I, I'll talk about my medical students, they aren't, they're first generation kids. If you go to many other schools, you'll see um, students who are second, third generations, even at some of the HBCUs. So this is first generation and they lift their family out of, out of poverty, but they walk out with an unequal burden of debt, you know, 175 to $200,000. So we need to do something as it relates to that. We also need to do something as it relates to students who are dreamers, right? Um, because there are plenty of dreamers out there who, um, as you probably know, don't qualify for federal loans. Mm -hmm. Makes them incredibly vulnerable. But where do they serve? They serve in the community that they've come from. Correct. And so, you know, we've done some of these policy things in which making people um, citizens, if they've done something and they've served people, it's time. Uh, it's time that we deal with some of those issues. And, you know, what I've learned here is what you, the phenotype of what you think of as, um, or what people look like, um, isn't what you, they look like as far as people who are dreamers. <laughs> these are kids from all over the place who are dreamers. It's not just people who've come across um, a Southern border. So that'd be one of the policy things that we do. And I think that we need to start co collecting um, data and looking at outcomes 
sorry, collecting data on race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status, combine those and look at outcomes. And I think we need to hold some places accountable for having lesser outcomes um, as it relates to um, people of color. And so I think on the last thing I would say about this as far as policy, um, you know, how do we enforce that people get good quality care regardless of who they are? And that's gonna be the big question. And then I think that, you know, just good public health practices and policies. Our work needs to be community relevant. So that work that's in the test tube, that's important. Um, but what has happened is we failed to implement what we currently know as it relates to public health, uh, whether it be vaccinations or whether or not people have um, clean water without lead to drink, mm. right? right. Um, we fail to implement what we know. And there's a role for the federal government in this. There's a role for the local government. That's where, that doesn't tend to be where the money is. So let me ask you a self-serving, selfish question, because uh -huh. I'm from the big city of Denmark, South Carolina, where we got three stoplights and a blinking light. I read uh, your story. Yeah. My question to you is, are there unique challenges that make health, health equity even more elusive in rural settings? And if so, what are our policy and clinical tools for addressing them? Well, great question. So I did read about Denmark and Sweden and, <laughs> and uh, Norway <laughs> and all that. So that black belt, right, where people don't have access to, to, to doctors. Mm -hmm. So again, I think there are, there are policy levers that we could be pulling to make certain that people have access. Telehealth has certainly provided um, people more access, but there are challenges with that. Patients often need to actually see um, a doctor to know that somebody is in this with them. So I think, you know, I talked about, um, you know, deploying um, doctors to areas where we, um, so health, what we call health professional shortage areas. Um, we could use some of those levers to pay back some educational debt. I think that um, we could use mid-level providers, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, those type of people um, could certainly provide great service and healing, healing to communities. Um, people need to have access to care. And I think part of the reason why people don't trust is that they don't necessarily have people from their community. We've shown that through a holistic process, you know, we can create doctors that come and look like us. The last question, probably the most important question is, is what do you want watchers to get out of Color of Care? And how can they find Color of Care, follow your work and the work that you're doing in New York and around the country? Well, you can, um, for Color of Care, that is actually showing in a different, Smithsonian channels, it's on YouTube. Um, you can just Google color of care. They have a website um, that you can Google again and get um, color of care and see the film. I would encourage people. I've actually watched it four times. <laughs> well, you know, I watched it with my students. Yeah. Um, and we need to be able to debrief this, uh, to think about, you know, what is it that we take away and that why and it actually goes to why the CUNY School of Medicine exists. You know, because if other people 
had addressed health and healthcare disparities. There'd be no reason for this school to exist. If other people had addressed educational disparities, there'd be no reason for this school to exist. But we exist because we believe that we can eliminate some of these health and educational disparities in our time. So um, that's what I would tell you. Um, we can be found at the CUNY School of Medicine. It's very, you can Google us. Um, again, and I'm, my, I'm Carmen Green and people can certainly, I can be easily found. But those are the things that I would say are, are, are um, takeaway points. And so we invite people to um, watch the film, discuss the film. There are places in which you can chat about it on, online. Um, we look forward to being able to share some of our data that we will uh, give back um, from what our students have walked away with this. And so hopefully you'll invite me back and we can share that. I want I want to be invited to uh, your school to sit down and chat with the students. I'm waiting on that invitation. Well, you know, um, hey, we, we would love to have you come and maybe um, talk as a um, commencement speaker or oh, what, uh, who knows. I would what? love it. I would love okay. it. I would love it. This so, has been such an enriching star to my morning, Dr. Green. I just want to say thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us. You be well. You be well. Thank you.